It's my uh, privilege today to be able to introduce our guest speaker for the morning, Pastor Dennis Edwards from Sanctuary Covenant Church. And uh, you'll remember some of you this summer when we had about 48 hours notice that we couldn't worship in this room in the middle of June. And Steph and I were on the phone saying, so how do you communicate to, you know, 400 people about a change of venue? And where do, where do you invite yourself over to go if you, if you suddenly can't worship in your normal space? And we called uh, Pastor Dennis and Pastor Edron over at Sanctuary. And Pastor Dennis, I think, was even on sabbatical. Weren't you on sabbatical? You weren't even... And they responded within hours to say, of course you can come over and worship with us and bring your, like, 75 kids or however many you have over. I'm sure the folks in the kids' rooms are going to love it. It was fine. So what a generous act. They have been such great partners with us uh, over on the north side. If you don't know, they're just about to finish a brand-new building right on Broadway and move yeah. in this next month. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we asked Pastor Dennis if he'd be willing to come and speak since we were having this conversation this month, and he graciously... Uh, said yes yeah. he also just finished a commentary on the book of first peter yeah. so and he brought some copies with him so if you'd like one please stop at the back table on your way out and he would be happy to probably even to sign it for you wouldn't yeah. you be my pleasure yeah please welcome pastor dennis edwards thank you, thank you. thanks michael appreciate it wow well thank you really is a privilege to be with you all i um oh i thought i was different can i just make that go up this one? This one? Okay. So I, um, I really, whoa. I think it's this one too. But that one could bring it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's okay. So I, um, you know, when I first heard about Mill City, I've been in Minnesota. My wife, Susan, is here. And we've been here about five years, five and a half now. And uh, when I first heard about Mill City, I thought you were a covenant church. So we claim you, whether you want to be claimed or not. <laughs> And, uh, and so I've gotten privileged to get to know your pastors and just really appreciate your ministry in so many ways. I, um, yeah, I would like you all to have a commentary, and by have, I mean by. And um, so, but I'm glad that uh, Pastor Michael mentioned that. I, I, uh, I make a little disclaimer. Now, now I'm a, my, my doctorate's in biblical studies, so I do spend a lot of time in the text. I like to do exegesis, but today's going to be a little different. Um, with this conversation that you're having, I hope you don't mind if I share um, some personally, and then we'll also get to uh, Scripture in time. But I'm very grateful for this chance to be with you all, and uh, just ask if you would also uh, join me again in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you so much for who you are and for what you do. You are great and greatly to be praised. We thank you, Lord God, that you are good and your mercies endure forever. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to uh, spend time together as a community of faith. I thank you that we can share together. Our churches have good relationship with one another. I thank you, Lord God, that you love us. And we've been singing about that this morning and accepting the truth of your word. Yes, Jesus loves me. I thank you for the little one dedicated today and a reminder that you love the little ones and they serve as an example to us. So I pray, Lord God, that you would help me to communicate um, uh, faithfully, honestly, in a way that's helpful. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower me and that, God, you be glorified. Glorify yourself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We pray in your name, 
by your authority. Amen. So, I do, I, I, I was a little bit nervous when Pastor Michael asked me about speaking related to race, because it's something I'm actually nervous about doing. I, I'm, I'm in my 50s and been a Christian for a while, and, um, and have often been in cross-cultural context, and I got to the point where it was so hard at times to talk about these matters that I just stopped. I remember saying to my wife at one point, shoot me if I ever deal with white evangelicals again. Now, we don't have a, we don't have a gun. Um, it, was, it was metaphorical and hyperbolic, but, but it, um, it got to the point of how I was feeling. And, I've been, and I know that a lot of white Christians don't want to wade into those waters either because it's uncomfortable to talk about our difficult and storied history. I was sitting in the basement of a church with a group of people because I was serving this church on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. I'm a New Yorker. I didn't mention that. I'm a New Yorker who, um, who lives in Minnesota. <laughs> um, but for seven, after some time in New York, 17 years or so of ministry in D.C. before I came to the sanctuary. So during my first year or so at this church in Washington, D.C., there was a meeting called uh, in the basement of the church for all the parents of teenagers and the elders of the church the youth directors wanted to uh, share some things. Now, you should understand that this church is in Washington, D.C., and Washington used to be affectionately called Chocolate City <clears throat> because of it was mostly black, in case you didn't get the, the point. <laughs> so, but this church, in its description, said that it was 6% African-American. I don't know who uh, calculated. It was a church about 400. Um, but they hired me to be an associate pastor there, and I, you know, I kind of figured, well, we figured it was because, you know, they're in Chocolate City and it'd be nice to have somebody black on staff. And I was young. What did I know? I thought it was a good idea, too. So here we are in the basement of the church, and these young people are telling us they're not going to volunteer anymore with our young people if, the church kid, if they have to be the leaders for the church kids and the city kids in the same youth group. Now, mind you, we had a program after school for kids to get tutored and such. We called it the Neighborhood Learning Center, NLC. And uh, the kids from the NLC and the church kids were in the same youth group when I arrived. But these young adults gave their ultimatum. They would not volunteer anymore if they had to have our kids and the, and the city kids. City kids were a euphemism. <clears throat> Neighborhood kids, similar euphemism. It meant the black kids. How else would they know where they were from? <clears throat> All the people in the church who had kids of... Of, uh, of that age for youth group all lived in the northern Virginia suburbs. They didn't even live in Washington, D.C. So the kids who could actually physically walk to our building were being told, in essence, that they weren't really welcome to be part of the youth group. This didn't seem to agitate anybody in the, in the gathering. So I raised my hand and I said, well, this is problematic for me. Now, our oldest at the time was only about 13. He wasn't yet in the youth group. And they said, well, of course, Jonathan, that's our oldest, Jonathan could come. I said, well, thanks. I mean, <laughs> I work there. I would hope that my kid could go to the youth group. I said, but that's not really the point. I said, my point is the kids who could walk here, you're saying aren't welcome here. And they said, well, Jonathan can bring his friends. I said, this is creating more problems than it's solving. I said, because as soon as something goes down in the youth group, and stuff will go down in the youth group, if you haven't worked with teenagers, be prepared. 
I said, but as soon as something goes down, the kids that you didn't want there in the first place will be the first ones who get targeted as being the troublemakers. I said, I don't want to put kids through that. What do you propose was the question. I said, well, I would love to see them together. I said, but you don't want them together. There was a woman in the group whose daughter was going to be a senior in high school, and she said, well, I know how Jonathan will feel. She said, my daughter is a se- will be a senior, and there's no other seniors in the youth group. And I said, so being a senior and being the only black kid, these are the same things that I thought that. So I proposed that we, if we weren't going to put all the kids together, we'd have separate and equal youth groups with a little wink to the past. I thought that they would like be offended by that and get where I was going. They said, okay, how should we do this? I said, well, if you're going to put all this, if you're going to give volunteer resources to, to the church kids, then I want to give some time to the kids in the city who are right in our neighborhood. So they actually altered my job description, so I became the director for the, for the neighborhood uh, learning center's youth part. At least I worked with them for about a year or so. <clears throat> that happened after... I had labored for several years in Washington, D.C., I'm sorry, in New York City, as a church planter. I had worked in the denomination that uh, wanted to plant more urban churches, although they weren't sure what they were going to do about it or how we should do it. And yet, at the same time, they were really excited about the people who were planting these suburban churches. There was a guy from my class. We, We both were church planters. We both were going to plant in the eastern part of the country. He said he was going to plant 100 churches up and down the eastern seaboard. He was like a used car salesman. He could talk really well. He was uh, you know, really witty and funny. He was the kind of guy that said, you know, you don't ask permission, you ask forgiveness. And, and uh, he actually barred one of my final exams at seminary because he, uh, you know, because I had done well. And then I found out later the teacher said, don't look at any old final exams. But he didn't care. He was going to do whatever. They gave him a whole bunch of money to get his church going. They didn't plant 100 churches up, this, up the seaboard, but we got nothing. And here we were laboring really hard in New York City, you know, killing ourselves in many ways. And we were in the shadow of Redeemer Presbyterian way uptown. They had planted about a year before us. And they were sort of with the Friends Seinfeld kind of folks uptown. If you ever saw those television shows, you could picture what I'm talking about. But not the poor folks in Brooklyn where we're trying to build a sense of community, we got no money. I went back to teaching school. So I taught math and science while we were trying to get this church going. I remember one time closing the, the door, locking the door in the little storefront that we were eventually able to rent, and I lived two floors above. And as I was locking the door, these, this car is coming barreling down a Fourth Avenue in Brooklyn, and I'm thinking, what in the world's going on? So I said, I'm getting out of here. So I turned the corner, but before I could get the keys out and get in the door, there were a bunch of guys, you know, coming after me in regular clothes with, with flashlights and said, hey, stop, stop, stop. And they finally said they were police. So I'm like shaking. And I remember saying, these are my keys. These are my keys. Because I was scared. He said, what are you doing in that store? I said, well, that's our church. I, I was locking the door. They checked me out for a while. We go back and forth for a little while. And then I said, I just lived two stores up, two, two floors up. And finally, I get to go inside. But man, I'm shaking the whole time. And I'm thinking, man, this church planting thing is harder than I, than I thought. <laughs> interestingly, just to, I could tell a whole lot more stories. But interestingly, the president of the denomination that I served, um, which is here in Minneapolis, 
the Evangelical Free Church of America, I, it's shade, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> that's who it was. Um, who they didn't, didn't give me any help to get that church planted. When I left, the director, I should say, the director of church planting in our conference said, we put your face in the beacon. What more did you want? Beacon is their denominations magazine. What more did you want? And the president now just said two years ago to someone I know who sits on the same board of directors that he sits on for Northwestern, uh, University of Northwestern said, you know, we never helped Dennis get that church going in Brooklyn, 20 some years later. All right, before that, I had been a college student at Cornell. I majored in chemical engineering at Cornell, and during my time there, I was involved in a campus ministry. And in that campus ministry, I remember the conservative Christians that were part of that ministry um, didn't appreciate that a lot of our students were against our university's investments in South Africa. And the conservative Christians were the ones who said to me that um, we shouldn't be agitated about this. And, and, and I said, but shouldn't black people have the, have the freedom to run their own country? In fact, they're in the majority. And they said, well, you know what happened to Rhodesia when it became Zimbabwe? They became Marxist. So we can't have that country be Marxist. These are the Christians telling me that they would rather have apartheid than have the black people run their own country. So I, I'm scratching my head. I said, so it's okay for white European colonists to fight King George in Great Britain but not to have the blacks stand up for their own country where they've been colonized, yeah, I guess I was wrong. For some strange reason, I was being taught that black people really don't count that much. I went to seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School well-known evangelical seminary. I didn't know anything about seminaries. I went there because a pastor encouraged me to go. I went there, didn't know what to expect, so, you know, my first term, I sat right in the front of all my classes because I was afraid that I was going to miss something, and I didn't know anything about this liberal arts education. I, didn't, I mean, I was an engineer. I knew problem sets and using my calculator and all that kind of stuff. Calculator, that was before the computers. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm sitting right in the front. I remember taking this class on... on church history, and I was so new to the school. And the professor who was teaching the church history used to use an outline, you know, A, B, C, D. So we got up to D, and we were at the Reformation. In fact, we were talking. I said, I can I won't never forget it. I'm sitting there in the class, and he says, we're up to D, and the topic was Menno Simons. If any of you know church history, he's the guy for whom the Mennonites are named. So we're just talking about these branches of groups that come off the Reformation, D. And so a couple days later, we're back in class. He says, where do we leave off? I dutifully say D, Menno Simons. And for some reason, he launches into this dialect like of a black slave where he mocks me, D, Menno Simons, and starts going on like this. I'm like, what? What? What's that about? And I'm sitting there like, is he mocking me? Why? The midterm gets returned. I don't get mine. So I get all, go up to him and I said, um, I don't have my midterm. He says, well, I gave them all out. So I don't know what's going on. Now, I happen to work security on the weekends. And so I had keys on the weekend. So I said, I'll just go check the student mailboxes. I go to the student mailboxes and I guess they had probably put it in the wrong one, you know, somewhere around my box. And sure enough, it was in the one next to mine. I had like a 99 on this midterm, which is a good grade because it's out of 100. 
just so you know. It, was, it wasn't 99 out of like 1,000, then you thought, oh, you thought you were a good student. Um, so I happened to run into him after that, and he goes, you know, I checked my grade book. He said, you got the highest grade in the class. Okay, I'm happy. But why do you treat me like you're surprised? And that like I'm kind of this dumb backwards guy. I took ethics there from a well-known professor who was clear that racism wasn't something we were going to talk about in our ethics classes. He had written a book and dedicated it to Ronald Reagan and Jesse Helms, and we had to read that book. So it was clear that his political agenda was more important than us talking about certain other topics. I had another professor that everybody knows in this country in evangelicalism. I had Wayne Grudem. I shouted him out too. And Wayne Grudem said, you know, told us how we should vote in 1988, who we should vote for for the president. And he said, you know, if, if Nixon would have won Illinois in 1960, he would have beat uh, uh, Kennedy. The class was quiet. And one brave soul said, would that have been a good thing? And then <laughs> some of us laughed because we didn't know, you, I mean, this is the professor. So I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the place where I thought, I was so naive, I thought that our Christian faith was supposed to transcend partisan politics, but it was becoming really clear to me that I was naive about these things. I want to encourage you in some way, but I also want you to, to hear me, frankly, that has been a pretty tough journey as an evangelical, and I'm even hesitant to say that word, um, who's African-American. And I tried. I tried to play by the rules. Went to Trinity, was a good student, graduated cum laude, tried to plant a church in an evangelical denomination. I did all the things that I thought I was supposed to do. But the way I've been treated over the years made it really hard. In the book of First Peter, Peter calls his people people of the dispersion, the diaspora. He later in chapter 2 says they are aliens. He said as aliens and foreigners, he addresses his community. These are people who were out of step with the larger society, because of their faith in Jesus, some perhaps because of actual immigration circumstances, but because of their faith in Jesus, they were out of step with the broader society. So they were foreigners, aliens, dispersed peoples, and they teach us of what it's like to be true disciples of Jesus. Suffering for the kingdom's sake, displaced from their homeland, displaced from homeland. I think I get this. When I was an eager evangelical trying to do the right things, I used to get Christianity Today. It was a magazine. Remember magazines? <laughs> and I remember seeing they would have these ads in there to find your family crest. Put your name in. You know, you can find your family crest. Well, they know their market, white European folks, who probably would find this kind of interesting and put it up on the wall. So I, I looked at that, and I had mixed feelings about it all. I, partly because I know that that's who you're targeting your, your magazine to. But I've been trying to hang in here and, 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 and travel on this journey alongside you all. I got this name Edwards. I have absolutely no idea how I have this name Edwards. That family crest means absolutely nothing to me. But I got this English name. And y'all know how I got the English name. 
I just don't know from whom. I will never know. So it's sufficient for me to have to name a whole continent. I'm African-American. Not just me, of course. I'm just telling my story as paradigmatic of many stories. But that's the way evangelicalism was. Didn't even notice us, didn't even see us. Except for a few people who would get invited to conferences because they were good singers or really hooping, hollering preachers because it seemed like that white folks liked to have black folks there if they could entertain them. And somehow we were there still for the pleasure of the dominant culture. Not to influence your way of thinking and ideas, but to co-sign on what's already happening and to perhaps even make us smile and laugh while you're doing it. That's why I said, shoot me if I ever deal with white evangelicals again. That was hard. But here we have our Lord who speaks through Peter to this folks and says, these people teach, can teach us about suffering. They can teach us about perseverance. People on the margins can often be our best teachers, but, but for some odd reason, we keep looking to the powerful to be our best teachers. Jesus seems to teach us that the real lessons of faith come from people who are poor, people who are weak, people who are on the margins, like slaves, like foreigners, like women, and like Pastor Stephanie said today, like children. They teach us what the kingdom of God is like. White Christians often ask me how they can be helpful when we talk about issues of race, and I, I don't know. I keep thinking, yet it's another one of those times where I'm supposed to serve you by providing answers for you when there's a whole heap of information out there. There's like an internet. You can find a lot of information out there. Yet still somehow I'm asked to somehow guide you through a process. Not you, because y'all didn't ask me anything. But I just mean, in general, white people have asked me, and I thought, I, I, why should I provide the solution for you? Yet, I was at a function yesterday where we saw the movie 13th, the documentary, and I was on a panel discussion, and it was somebody there who said, talked about allies and, um, and accomplices. That ally is one thing, you know, it can be at your computer and be an ally, but accomplice, and his person was formerly in law enforcement, said, you know, accomplice gets arrested along with the other person because you are both are complicit in this, this activity. So he talked about being an accomplice. It reminded me of the writings of Richard Allen. Richard Allen uh, founded the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, a freed slave, former slave, uh, who founded this denomination. Many of his writings exist. And he wrote this to white abolitionists. I feel an inexpressible gratitude towards you who have engaged in the cause of the African race. You have wrought a deliverance for many from more than Egyptian bondage. Your labors are unremitted for their complete redemption from the cruel subjection they are in. You feel our afflictions. You sympathize with us in the heart-rending distress when the husband is separated from the wife and the parents from the children who are never more to meet in this world. The tear of sensibility trickles from your eye to see the sufferings that keep us from increasing. Your righteous indignation is roused at the means taken to supply the place of the murdered babe you see our race more effectually destroyed than was in Pharaoh's power to effect upon Israel's sons. You blow the trumpet against the mighty evil. You make the tyrants tremble. You strive to raise the slave to the dignity of a man. You take our children by the hand to lead them in the path of virtue. By your care of our education, you are not ashamed to call the most ab abject of our race brethren, children of one father 
who hath made of one blood all the nations of the earth. You ask for this, nothing for yourselves, nothing but what is worthy the cause you are engaged in, nothing but that we would be friends to ourselves and not strengthen the bands of oppression by an evil conduct when led out by the house of bondage. May he who hath arisen to plead our cause and engaged you as volunteers in the service add to your numbers until the princes shall come forth from Egypt and Ethiopia stretch out our hands unto God. Pretty magnificent words. But he blesses those who we might call accomplices. I think about folks who made it through the descendants of slaves. There's lessons there in faith and perseverance that we would do well to heed. In fact, I would argue that I would much rather get my lessons about faith and about perseverance from a slave than from the prominent evangelicals who surround our president. Now, how about that? I would rather learn lessons of faith from those who've been on the margins at the bottom than those who seek to be around the most powerful people in the land. This is what Jesus is teaching us. This is what 1 Peter tells us. This is what we have not learned here in the States is that we, don't, we keep looking to people who appear powerful in the eyes of the world to teach us how to live our faith. And Jesus keeps saying, no, look elsewhere. You look at those who've been on the margins to teach you how to live this life of faith, to teach you the way of Jesus, because that was his way. So where do we go from here? Where do I go from here? I was wrestling with this, because I tell you, it's kind of a vulnerable thing to share about, because every time you... For me, I can only speak about myself. When I've shared about race and stuff, people get, at, get mad at me. You know, it's sort of a shoot the messenger kind of a thing. And, and I've, so I stopped for a long time. There was a whole period of time when I stopped reading those magazines, Christianity Day, stuff like that. I just stayed away from all of that. You know, I finished my doctorate. I wasn't even kind of wanting to deal with any of this stuff for a while. I didn't even know who all these rising stars were in evangelicalism and in church world. And now we hear somebody talk about, don't you know who so-and-so is? I'm like, I don't know who these people are. I don't read these magazines anymore. I remember one time I went to a conference, and it was a magazine. I think it was, I forget what it was. It was before Relevant came out. So I think it was, it was called Rev. And they were, you know, marketing it to reverends, I guess. And I think Rev, you know, a double entendre. Rev you up, you know, kind of. I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. So I would get this magazine, and I remember every single face, and there was some young white guy. And I thought, okay, I get it. I know it's your market, but you want me to buy it. It's like somebody said yesterday at this conference, you know, you want rooms with mirrors. You want to see yourself. If I don't see myself reflected, then you're telling me it's not for me. You could tell me I'm welcome all you want, but if I don't see me fitting in there, then why should I be bothered? So I remember at this conference, I'm standing at the counter, seeing, you know, at the display. I'm going, there's a lot of book displays. I'm going by, and I like books, so I'm going by. The, and, and this guy stops me, and he's, he's like the rep for them. And he asked me about I said, you don't want to hear what I have to say. And he said, yeah, I do. So I told him. I told him what I see in the magazine, what I don't see in the magazine. And I said, you asked me. I said, I don't mean to be mean. I said, but it's not for me. And he was quiet. And he said, well, you know, we're, we're going to do better. Gonna, you know, I, I heard that most of my adult life. Okay. I didn't come here to rant. I didn't come here to make anybody feel badly. I came here because after a talk with Pastor Michael, he said I could share, share some of my own awareness of race and where, uh, and part of my journey. So where do I go from here? For me, 
Part of my calling is that of Ezra. It says in the book of Ezra, or chapter 7, verse 10, it says that Ezra studied the word, obeyed the word, and taught the word as a scribe. And I try to encourage anybody I get a chance to talk to about pastoral ministry, I say, I think that's my calling, but I want to encourage you that way too. If I get to talk to any young pastors, I say, study the word, obey the word, and teach the word. So that's what I see as the calling on my life, and I want to do that. And, and, and I, I want to encourage you all in that same journey. And then I think about Philippians chapter 2. That's a passage I go to many, many times in my life to be an encouragement to, to others. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to for personal gain, but emptied himself, took on the form of a slave, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God super exalted him, gave him a name above every name. That's my model of ministry. Well, I end with a quick personal story. I, uh, I often talk about my great aunt and my great aunt Flossie. I went to her funeral just a couple years ago. And um, my great aunt was born in South Carolina. She, she passed away in her 90s. And uh, when I was at the funeral, she had been a member of this Baptist church for 65 years. And the uh, eulogist was 68, a retired judge, who talked about how he was continually told that my aunt Flossie, my great aunt Flossie, gave him his first blanket after the hospital when he came home because my great aunt and his mother were best friends. And he began to tell us about things in her life that we didn't even know, many of us, because they would have these long conversations on the stoop in their house in Washington, D.C. My aunt Flossie grew up in a time where she picked cotton. She grew up in a time before and into the Great Depression. This was a woman whose life was miserable. When the movie The Help came out, I had read the book, I saw the movie, I called up Aunt Flossie, I said, did you, did you see the movie? She said, oh, they, they, they meaning the grandchildren. She said, they tried to take me to that movie. She said, Dennis, why do I want to see that? She said, every female in your family did domestic work for white people. I knew this. Somehow I thought she would want to see that. Why did I think that? I thought of the mess that she had to live through cleaning up for other people, taking care of other people's kids, cooking for other people. Didn't have to go home and do that for her own family, cook and clean and take care of the kids. The mess that she had to go through, she was part of the Great Migration, so she, my mother, and my mother's mother, those three women, went up from South Carolina to Washington, D.C., and she met Clifton, and they were married, and stayed married for 65 years till Clifton passed away. She won't share, she wouldn't share a lot of those stories from the past. And I realized, that's traumatic. But instead, she chose to love. Everybody welcome at her table. The preacher at the, at the funeral said, she lived the golden rules. She would do to others as she would have them do to her. She, he told us, go and do likewise. I learned about love from, from someone most people in our society wouldn't even give the time of day to. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's about power. It's about position. But it's about going the way of Jesus. Listening to the voices of the... I'm not just saying that poor people are honorable. I'm saying more than that. I'm not just saying to pay attention to people who aren't formally educated. I'm saying more than that. I'm saying our teachers, our preachers, our evangelists, our, the people who, who we look to to do ministry in our, in our context, 
we need to listen to the people who come from the places that aren't the most powerful places. They will teach us what it means to follow the way of Jesus. Well, there's so much more I can say, but I think I'm running out of time. So let me encourage you, sisters and brothers, to pay attention, read the books, listen to folks whose world is different, and maybe that will forge a way forward. I have great hope when I see churches like Mill City and the sanctuary because I see young people who are saying, we don't want to do it the way our folks did it. We don't want the world to be the way it has been. And I know, I know, I know we keep doing the same things. We keep trying to say, well, let's just sing in each other's churches. Let's eat each other's food. This is what we've been saying for the 30-something years that I've been on this journey. The same stuff we've been talking about. We haven't progressed very, very far over learning how to eat together. But maybe, maybe that's a good place to start. Let me pray and then invite the praise team to come back up. Lord, I give you thanks. Because you're good. We've been saying that. We've been singing about it. And I even prayed that earlier. You're good. Your word declares it. Our experiences confirm it. And even in the life uh, when we face difficulties and trials and all sorts of uh, challenges, even when we have to wave the flag of surrender, we wave it confessing you are good. And you're the only place we can turn when life is difficult. You're the only person we can turn to to feel full love and acceptance. You're the only one who knows us full well, still loves us, welcomes us in. And you're the only hope for healing fragmented relationships. Lord, have your way. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray with thanksgiving, with great expectation. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Can we give Pastor Dennis a round of applause, please? Thank you. Thank you. It's a hard enough thing to just go speak somewhere else. You kind of want the people to like you, and you're not sure if you're going to say the right thing, but it's a much harder thing to be asked to come and share some of the more vulnerable things that have happened to you in your life. So I just want to pray uh, a prayer of protection over Pastor Dennis and Susan for their willingness to be vulnerable with all of us. Jesus, we thank you for these words that have been spoken. We pray for protection over the Edwards family. Pastor Dennis, Susan, their children, their church, their ministry, God, we pray that your hedge of protection would be around them, that they have the confidence to share the things that they've learned and the experiences that they've had, both positive, Lord, and very hard at the same time. We pray, God, that you would watch over them, continue to have your grace be on their ministry as they continue to listen to your word and obey it and encourage others by teaching it. We're grateful for their presence today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.